welcome to this week's edition of Taiwan Talk. I'm Hope Go. Few Western journalists have covered China the way Mike Chinoy has. Chinoy first visited China in 1973, spent eight years there as CNN's first Beijing bureau chief, which included the Tiananmen Square crackdown, and has continued to follow events in China to this day. After he stepped down from the news business, Chinoy joined the University of Southern California, where he is a non-resident fellow at the school's U.S.-China Institute. Chinoy is now based in Taipei and joins us this week to talk about his book *Assignment China*, about not just his experiences but those of other Western journalists and what the journalists of today might learn about studying China from a distance. And the reason why that's important is that the way in which the American media has Reported on China has shaped the way both the American public and the American government, the American political class, has understood or misunderstood China. In addition, given the the international clout of U.S. news organizations like the New York Times or CNN or the the wire services, the American media portrayal of China has had a kind of disproportionate impact all over the world in shaping the way people look at China. So we thought there would be value in. Allowing the people who have told the China story to tell their own stories, because one of the things I think that has become evident to me over many years, having been a foreign correspondent, is that most consumers of news don't have the slightest idea where the news that they're watching or reading or listening to comes from, and yet the process by which journalists go out into the field and witness events and put the information together and transmit it and so forth has a decisive impact on the final product. How many times did you hit the story where a correspondent reported on one thing and the story didn't exactly fit the narrative that that the American government or the publisher wanted to um, to convey, and and so that got massaged, as it were. I think there are probably there are definitely cases where. People got it wrong in the moment, not because of an agenda, but because one of the challenges of being a journalist is that you have to put together your 800 words or your two and a half minutes, and you've got to do it by your deadline, which could be five o'clock in the afternoon or nine o'clock at night, or after the advent of CNN and the internet, it became 24 hour, always on deadline, and so you go with what you. Understood at the time, and it's always incomplete. And when you have complicated stories, and when you're dealing with a society like a system like China, that's you can't just call up the Communist Party and say, "Oh, by the way, could you just quickly give me some background on X, Y, or Z to put in my story?" It doesn't work that way. So there are plenty of cases, I think, where specifics people got wrong, and 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 looking back with the benefit of hindsight,、um, people. We're pretty honest about what they got wrong, but also journalism is kind of self-correcting. If you get it wrong, you can write another story in which you put it right. And I think one of the things people have asked me, you know, what surprised me about all of this interviewing well over a hundred people and reviewing all sorts of coverage going back decades, and what's surprising to me is the extent to which I think people got it right more than they got it wrong. Yes, there were. Plenty of embarrassing mistakes. We all made them. It's not difficult to do so under the circumstances. But if you go back now and look at the broad contours of the way in which, you know, elite politics were described throughout, say, the '60s and '70s and Cultural Revolution and the, the end of the Mao era, or the battles between so-called pragmatists and conservatives 
in the 80s or, or the power struggle that came to a climax in Tiananmen Square and so on, or the broad themes in the society. Plenty of specifics were not as accurate as they might be, but the big picture I think people did pretty well, somewhat to my surprise. Okay, you said that there were a few mistakes along the way. Can you think of one that stands out? I mean, I remember when I was just starting out at CBS News in Hong Kong and Mao's widow, Zhang Qing, and the so-called Gang of Four were purged and UPI had the bureau in the next room to where the CBS bureau was in Hong Kong. And Xinhua put out a story saying that we have liquidated a bane in our party. And the UPI reporters saw the word liquidated and immediately put out a bulletin. China announces Zhang Qing has been executed. That's one example. In 1989, one of the things that people got wrong was in the immediate chaotic aftermath of the crackdown Tiananmen Square, June 3rd and 4th, there were all of these rumors about discontent within the People's Liberation Army. The discontent was real. I don't think there's any doubt that there were some elements in the PLA that objected. But that got turned by some journalists into intimations of looming civil war. Some of the reporters I spoke with said, you know, that's the mistake I'm most embarrassed by. In fairness, fueling that were comments by a Western military attache. And since those of us who were on the ground in Beijing, as I was as the CNN bureau chief, you couldn't exactly call the People's Liberation Army spokesman and say, can you tell us, are you having a civil war? Um, So we relied on the Western military attaches who were often more plugged in and had insights and background. There was one in particular who was pushing this line, which people accepted. And you were watching the disposition of tanks on the streets and trying to figure out, well, if a tank is pointing this direction, not that direction, what does that tell you? So you were kind of grasping at very fragmentary information. It doesn't justify getting it wrong, but it explains the circumstances where you have to follow your story every day, or in the case of CNN, literally every hour. You're going on what you hear, so you make mistakes. And I'm sure there there's no shortage of others, but once it became clear that that wasn't happening, then nobody stuck with it. So it's just... It happens in the chaos of events. You know, the, the human existence is not nice and neat and tidy. And one of the challenges as a journalist is you have to take something that's not nice and neat and tidy and put it into 800 words for your readers or put it into two and a half minutes for your viewers on television. And that requires you to put a framework in a situation where either the framework doesn't exist or you don't have the accurate understanding of the framework because no one's going out of their way to tell you the stuff is just happening and you're just the observer trying to make sense of it. What kind of learnings do you feel might be in the book for people who are more interested in the new way of journalism? Well, I think part of the value of the book for people who are doing journalism today is to know what came before because I think especially when it comes to China, there's a long history of people who have tried to report on the country. And I think the, the, if, if there's one kind of theme that goes throughout the whole book, it is this kind of permanent struggle of the American and uh, the books about journalists for the American media, but it's true more broadly of foreign correspondents in general, the permanent struggle of correspondence to kind of penetrate 
the veil of secrecy and get a deeper understanding of the reality of China and the Chinese Communist Party's determination to control the narrative, more or less at all costs. And that's a battle that has played out in many, many forms over many, many decades. But it's never gone away. It's always been the dynamic that has shaped the coverage. And so people either based in the People's Republic today or sitting here in Taipei or in Seoul or in Washington trying to make sense of it, I think will benefit from from learning something about how other people have tried to address the challenges because the, the technology has changed, the internet and uh, has dramatically changed a lot of things. The business model of many news organizations has been shaken up. When I started at CNN, I did television stories at CNN Today. You're doing TV, you're servicing the website, you're doing social media. There's a whole host of things that exist now that didn't exist before. But the fundamental challenge in relation to China hasn't changed, and that is, how do you make sense of this place? How do you get beyond the propaganda of the Communist Party and get a, a halfway decent understanding of what reality is like in China? And how do you explain that in ways that an audience that is not necessarily expert in China or deeply interested in China, but given the importance of China, is going to be affected by China, whether they want to be or not. How do you explain that to them? Um, so I think there's lots of value in learning how folks did it before and for people in the field uh, uh, to get a sense of, of, of what their predecessors what their experiences were, what, what kind of strategies and tactics they had to use to get information, or what they can learn from that today. You were listening to Mike Chinoy, non-resident senior fellow at the University of Southern California's U.S.-China Institute. And that does it for this week's edition of Taiwan Talk. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>